The overarching theme for our series is encouraged. You'll notice from our graphic above that we put a, a hyphen between the, the prefix N and the word courage, um, because not only do we think that this book will encourage us, but it will also impart courage to us and resilience to us in our walk with the Lord. So uh, in a sense, it does refer to joy and strength. I want us to be a church uh, that is encouraged with joy and strength. And the source of this joy and the source of the strength is not in and of ourselves. It's not uh, in the pastoral team or, or whoever and whatever. It is in the gospel, and the gospel is a person, Jesus himself. And so I believe that this is what we're going to see uh, throughout the book of Philippians. Listen to this quote from the ESV uh, Study Bible. It says, the chief theme of Philippians is encouragement. Paul wants to encourage the Philippians to live out their lives as citizens of a heavenly colony, as evidenced by growing commitment to service to God and to one another. It says, the way of life that Paul encourages was manifested uniquely in Jesus Christ. It was also evident in the lives of Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, who we will get to know as we go through this letter. And so I, I, th I just think that's a great summation of this book. And so yes, we are to live as citizens of heaven, because Jesus qualified us to be. And the only reason why we are citizens of heaven right now is because of Jesus and what he went through on the cross for us. And so what that means is, is persevering in a growing commitment to serving God and one another. And it says we are to do this while we still live on this side of heaven. Even though we are heaven's citizens, we are to live like that on this side of heaven. We're not to live as the world but we are to live as missionaries to the world. And that is why we need to be encouraged. That is why we need to be imparted with joy and courage in the gospel. And so this letter was written to the Philippian church to encourage them with joy and strength in the gospel, to persevere in their faith, especially in a day and age where Christianity wasn't recognized as an official religion. They were a Roman colony, and so they were expected to worship Caesar as Lord. The Christians changed that to Jesus is Lord, but they were expected to worship Caesar as Lord and worship all of the other various Roman gods and deities. And so they lived in a very pluralistic environment. And so if you think about it that way, we have a lot in common with them. We live in a day and age where Christianity no longer has an authoritative say or influence on society and society's values. Uh, our hold to a singular way of salvation and to our absolute truths uh, found in the Bible are, are scrutinized and even ridiculed. And so therefore, we too need to be encouraged. We need to be imparted with joy and strength in and through the gospel. So let's jump into the letter, and I'll also remind you uh, a bit about the background as to how the church started. You might remember we, uh, we looked at that just before our Easter celebration. So have a look at Philippians 1, verses 1 to 2 with me. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So this was a, a customary way of writing a letter back then in the first century. It begins with who it is from, much like you know, emails we receive today. You can kind of see who the email is from the email address, or, or most of the time. Uh, and so Paul obviously then is the author with Timothy, his young disciple, probably acting as the transcriber. And so Paul is, is currently under house arrest in Rome, awaiting trial before Emperor Nero. And so the year is probably around AD 62. And being under house arrest, he could receive visitors. That's why Timothy was there, like I said, probably transcribing this letter. And why he could also receive Epaphroditus all the way from Philippi, and we'll learn a bit more about him later. But being under house arrest, Paul also wrote three letters uh, to three churches, to Philippi, to the church in Colossus, and to the church in Ephesus, also to an, uh, another letter to an individual by the name of Philemon. Now, house arrest may seem nice, but uh, if any of you have had to quarantine, you could probably uh, sympathize with him. Uh, on top of that, Paul was constantly under guard by four Roman soldiers on a rotational basis. Some scholars say uh, four Roman guards uh, being rotated on a four-hourly basis, and some say that he, was even had, he even had to be chained to one of the, the soldiers. But let's put a map on, uh, up on the screen for you to, to see exactly where Rome was or is in relation to Philippi. So you see it there in the top left-hand corner. And you can find Philippi is in the, the most northern city of Macedonia. And so Philippi was approximately 4,608 miles from Rome. And so you can imagine poor Ephroditus made his way, this arduous journey, all the way to go and see Paul in in Rome. And so the book of Acts describes the city of Philippi as a leading city in Macedonia. It wasn't the capital, but it was a leading prominent city uh, in Macedonia. We'll put up uh, an artistic impression of the city in its heyday, which might be fairly accurate. You can see it's quite a large city um, because you can still see the ruins today. So a very, very large city, a lot uh, happening. Um, a couple of interesting facts, uh, many Roman veterans, Roman soldiers, uh, settled or retired in Philippi, um, and as a result, it was run by two military officers who were appointed by the Roman Senate, and so you can imagine, it was a, a very uh, well-run city. Uh, secondly, like Cayman, uh, in a way, it was a tax-neutral zone, uh, especially for its residents uh, and Roman citizens, um, although I'm sure they found other creative ways to tax them as well. Um, and so this was the first European church that Paul planted, uh, and, and God was clearly uh, was gunning for this city, if I can put it that way, as he poured out his grace uh, on Paul's ministry there. You may remember back in our mission sermon, we, we looked at how the church came into being. Uh, Lydia was the, was the first convert. She was a, a Jewish proselyte, uh, meaning she was a non-Jewish person who had converted to, to Judaism. And so she was, in other words, attempting to seek God uh, and attain righteousness before him by obeying the old covenant law and other Jewish traditions. Paul shares the gospel with her, and then look at what God does, just by way of reminder. Acts 16, verse 14. This verse is an incredible comfort to me and should be to all of us in, when we share Jesus. It says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. In other words, uh, a proselyte, Jewish proselyte. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. I love that. It's not like you have to be this uber eloquent you know, gospel presenter. 
God will open people's hearts to pay attention to what we say. So God's grace overcomes the religious heart. Next, God's grace overcame the demonic heart. You may remember the little slave girl who was possessed by a demon, uh, which enabled her to do uh, fortune telling, and so this brought her owners a lot of money. But again, God's grace through Paul overcomes uh, the evil and she's set free. Obviously, her owners are then aren't very happy about this. They no longer have a business. They no longer have profit. So they, they stir up a, a crowd, and this crowd absolutely lay into Paul uh, and Silas. They then get arrested and thrown into the deepest part of the, the prison. But not to worry, God then stirs up an earthquake, causing all the prison doors to, to fling open and their shackles to fall off the prisoners. The jailer is about to kill himself because he thinks all of the, the prisoners have escaped. And, and Paul stops him and shares the gospel with him and his family. And his entire family and the jailer are saved. And so God's grace saves the jailer from a hopeless position. So God's grace through the gospel kind of explodes onto the scene in Philippi. And we are radically transforming people's lives. And so we see this young church is started and, and it's founded on God's sovereign grace through the power of the gospel. And now when Paul writes in verse 2, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, we now have an idea of who some of those founding members were. He says, with the overseers and deacons. And so by the time of this writing, um, 10 or 11 years has passed. And now we see again by God's grace that the church has he's caused the church to grow because it's to all the saints. And they even have a leadership in place, deacons and elders. And as soon as this church, the Philippian church here, that Paul is in prison in Rome, they send a man, Epaphroditus, 4,608 miles to go and give him a gift and news of how they're doing as a church. And now look at how Paul responds to this. The bulk of the letter is, is Paul encouraging, imparting courage and joy to this church. But in the first part, we're going to see how this church encouraged Paul. Look at verses 3 to 8 with me. He writes, it says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So for the rest of our time, I just briefly want to answer the question, what was it about this church that brought so much joy to Paul and caused him to yearn for this church with the affection of Christ Jesus? You see it there in verse, verse three, it says, making my prayer, every time he remembers them and he prays for them, he says, making my prayer for you with joy. And then in verse eight, he says, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You kind of hope that the Galatian church didn't hear about this, because you remember how he started his letter to them. Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? We won't even talk about the Corinthian church. So, so what was it about this church? 
What was, what was so unique about them that caused all of this joy and affection for them? The answer is sandwiched between verses three and eight. So we'll have a look at it like this. We'll kind of sum it up like this. What we're gonna see is a gospel-centered church. I believe they were a gospel-centered church. A gospel-centered church is a joy-producing church because of three reasons. Number one, it partners in the gospel. Number two, it's God's workmanship. And number three, it's empowered by grace. So firstly, a gospel-centered church partners in the gospel. And like I said, I believe they were a gospel-centered church because because as we saw in how the church is started, I mean, it was nothing but the finished work of Jesus on the cross that could set them free from their sin and radically transform their lives. And what we need to realize, Sunrise, is that the gospel is not just something that we celebrate over Easter. And then we kind of move on to more weighty theological matters. Like, like uh, you know, the gospel is just Christianity 101 and then we move on to Christianity 102, whatever that might be. No, this whole book that we have here, this whole book is the gospel. It is the unfolding plan of God's redemptive love towards sinners. The Old Testament prepares the way for Jesus. The gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us about who this Jesus is and what he then does on the cross. And then the rest of the New Testament, all of the epistles, point back and tell us the implications of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross, and then encourage us to look forward to his return. That's why we have such a high view of the Bible here, because we want to live and experience all that the gospel promises for us. And that's what was bringing Paul so much joy and so much encouragement, because he could see the Philippian church were experiencing it. They were living in the promises, and they were living out the promises of the gospel. Not like the Galatian church, who were being deceived to abandon the gospel and return to the old covenant law. Now one of the implications or fruit of being a gospel-centered church is that you partner in the gospel. Look at verse five. Paul says he makes his prayer with joy, here's the reason why, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So firstly he tells us the characteristic of this partnership is that it's a partnership in the gospel. The Philippians have come together, they're partnering with Paul, not just for the sake of Paul, though they clearly loved him, but it was primarily based on the gospel. The center of their partnership was Jesus. Now, you might be thinking, I'm obviously stating the obvious here, but unfortunately I've seen many churches fall into, into traps here. I've seen churches partner for the sake of a building program. I don't hear what I'm not saying. A building is good and a building is important. I wish we had our own building, then we could look after our children a bit better. But when the building becomes the core focus and not just simply the means by which the church gathers and not just simply the means by which the preaching and the worship of God can go forth, then it becomes a problem. I've seen churches split and disagree because of building programs and and disagreement over the funds and misuse over the funds. Secondly, and this is probably the most prevalent one, and that is partnering or partnerships that are centered on an individual. There are so many charlatans out there preaching in the name of Jesus. And usually they have very charismatic personalities and 
incredibly gifted communicators, and so they, they have us eating out of the palm of their hands. But at the end of the day, the one who's being exalted is themselves in their pockets. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is at the core of our partnership? Is, is it a personality? Is it a program? Is it a building? Or is it the gospel? Time will also tell too. The second thing we learn about this gospel-centered partnership is its duration. He says they have partnered together from the first day until now. From the first day that Paul and his missionary team rolled into Philippi and Lydia was converted, they have partnered with him in the gospel right until that time they received this letter, like I said, which was approximately between 10 and 11 years. It's only over much time that you'll begin to see the genuine fruit of something. So in 11 years of being with Paul, of partnering with Paul in the gospel, they knew that if they pricked him, he would bleed gospel. He wouldn't bleed a private jet, a Ferrari, a white suit and snake in boots or something like that. I mean, he's in prison after all for, for preaching the gospel. But practically speaking, what does that mean? How, how did they practically partner with Paul in the gospel? And I see four ways. Number one, they served. Straight after Lydia was saved, she opened her house to Paul and his team. Acts 16 verse 15 says this. She urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She provided a roof over their heads, a bed for them to sleep, food on the table. She provided her place as a base for them to go and then proclaim the gospel in the city. And then as Paul and his team left Macedonia, we see them continuing to partner with them in three consistent ways. Number two, they prayed for Paul. Chapter one, verse 19 of Philippians says, for I know that through your prayers, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Talking about his imprisonment. Number three, they encouraged Paul. In chapter two, verse 25, Paul describes Epaphroditus as this, a fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. So they sent Epaphroditus with a specific message to encourage him and to, and to, to meet his particular needs. And lastly, they gave to Paul. In chapter four, I got the wrong reference here. In chapter four, verse 14 onwards, uh, we see Epaphroditus not only comes with this uh, encouraging message, but he comes with a financial gift to help Paul. And he tells us this, this wasn't just a once-off gift, but it was on a regular occurrence. And so you can imagine that this was no small task. There's no online giving, hey, Paul, can you just WhatsApp your online uh, details and we'll send you a, a gift? No, no, they, this was a dangerous undertaking as they had to physically send someone each time with a bag of money to go and find Paul somewhere in the known world. So Sunrise, if you have judged us to be a gospel-centered church, then I would encourage you to partner with us or to continue to partner with us. In the same way, serve, get involved, use your gifts and your talents, serve with your time and your energy, pray, pray for one another, you know one of the most encouraging things that I see when I go visit our community groups is at the end we, 
Everyone just shares what, what they're going through and we, and we all just rally around each other and we pray for each other. Pray for us as a leadership. Pray for our families. We value it more than you know. Encourage one another. Grow in relationship with one another and encourage each other with, with gospel-centered truths, gospel-centered promises. Give. Give if, you, if you're not already, in it, and I really just wanna thank all of you who do partner with us financially. But if, you, if you're convinced that we are all about Jesus, if you're convinced that we're all about knowing Jesus and making him known, then partner with us financially so that we can continue to do that. The second reason Paul is so encouraged and so full of joy regarding this gospel-centered church is because, point number two, a gospel-centered church is God's workmanship, or we can say God's workmanship in progress. And this point is especially comforting to me, and I, and I bet supremely comforting to the Apostle Paul. In verse eight, remember, he said he yearns for them. He's, he's missing this church. He, he yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus, yet he's frustratingly stuck in prison. All he wants to do is be with them. But then in verse 25, we'll see this later, he is convinced that he will be released. And so he says that he can continue to help them in their joy and progress in the faith. But now he wasn't under any false illusion that you know, their, their spiritual growth was all up to him. If he, if he couldn't be there, then you know, they're gonna fall off the wagon. No, no. It was because the gospel had impacted their lives that he could rest in this amazing gospel truth. Have a look at verse six. He says, I'm sure of this. In other words, he's confident of this. That he, that's God, who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The thing that Paul is most sure about is that the Philippian church is not his church, not even the elders and the deacons that he referenced earlier. Paul knows that this church belongs to God because God is at work in this church. This church is his workmanship. And I think Paul in saying this, he's both comforting himself and he's comforting them, but at the same time he's teaching them to keep their eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of their faith, Hebrews 12 verse two tells us. And so if we're gonna be a gospel-centered church, then we have to look to God to work within us. We have to look to him to change us. We have to look to him to transform us. Not, not, not the pastor, not the pastoral team, not your community group leader or your church family. And as a gospel-centered leadership, we have to point people away from reliance on us to Jesus because only Jesus can do the work that Jesus can do. That's why he's God and we're not. And we know what this good work is that Jesus began in them. We know he delivered Lydia from a religious heart. He delivered the little slave girl from a demonic heart. He delivered the jailer from a hopeless, even suicidal heart. There's nothing that he cannot save us from. This work that Jesus is up to is a, a deliverance work. He's ultimately delivering us from sin, the devil, and ultimately eternal death or separation from his presence. And here comes the comforting promise of this gospel work. It says, God will not stop working in you until Jesus returns. On that day, you will be complete. 
we will be fully delivered. We will be fully sanctified into the image and likeness of Jesus. I want us all to hear this promise. But just right now, I really feel that there's a couple of people who really need to hear this. That God has got you. He's not gonna drop you. He's working in you and he will complete what he has started in you. It won't be a smooth ride. It won't be a perfect ride. Because as long as we are in these bodies, we will have to fight off sin. We will have to fight off temptation. We'll have to fight off the deception of the devil. But through the cross, here's the amazing news, through the cross, the penalty of our sins has been paid for once and for all. That's why the Bible describes us as justified before our heavenly father. And it's now through the indwelling presence of God, the Holy Spirit, that we can overcome the power of sin in our lives. And then finally, at the return of Jesus, we'll be set free from the presence of sin because we will have new fully sanctified bodies and we'll be in the new heavens and the new earth with our King. And the reason why this is so comforting to me is because sunrise belongs to the Lord. You belong to the Lord. You are His church and He has promised that He will complete the work in us as a faith family. Corporately, he, he's doing a work in us. And we as the leadership are, are, are simply the means. And all of our programs and our services are simply the means that he will use, but ultimately he is doing the work. And then on an, on an individual level, he's, he's gonna continue his saving work in us. He's gonna eventually complete his work in me as a, as a husband and a father and as a pastor. He's gonna complete the work that he started in all of us, delivering us from our, our sin, healing you, healing you from your past hurts, whatever they might be, bringing wholeness to you, maturing us more and more into his image and his likeness. I just think, what an amazing promise for Paul, who's stuck in prison, yearning to be with him. But what an amazing promise to rest in. He can be in prison going, oh, I know God's got you. I know you're 4,608 miles from me, but God has got you. And he's faithful to complete the work that he started in you. So despite his situation, he could have joy. With that in mind, let's look at the last point briefly. A gospel-centered church is empowered by grace. And maybe I should say empowered by grace despite opposition, despite circumstances. Because, I mean, how, how else could you explain the survival of the church throughout the centuries, throughout the ages? Or maybe I shouldn't use the word survival because that can communicate that the church is kind of just getting by. But ever since the ascension of Jesus and the Holy Spirit was poured out, and, and the disciples went out proclaiming the gospel, the church has been spreading. Yes, there are still unreached people groups, but for the most part, everywhere you go, you will find a church. I have, I have preached in a little mud hut in the middle of Mozambique. I have preached in churches in the Middle East where there's so much opposition. There are churches in China everywhere you go, despite Opposition, opposition to the gospel, 
churches are planted. Tertullian, one of the great ancient uh, church fathers, rather famously said this. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The martyrdom of those who have carried and will still carry the gospel into the far reaches of the world. All that does is, is serve to, to spread the gospel and even more cause even more churches to sprout up. You take us out, there'll be more churches. This gospel is going. The only plausible answer to that is God's sovereign grace. God graciously bestowing favor and power through the proclamation of the gospel despite opposition, constant opposition. But God's grace needs a vehicle. God's grace needs a means in order to accomplish his will. Here's how Paul puts it in verse seven. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The word partakers there can also be translated as share or partner. So he's saying it's right for me to feel so much joy and so much affection toward you because you have been a means of grace to me. Or in other words, you can say, we have been used by God to be a means of grace to each other. Paul uses that word again in chapter four, verse 14, where he says, yet it was kind of you to share or partner with me in my trouble. The apostle John in Revelation 1.9, he uses it, he says it this way, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So the, the common context in which this word is used in all three passages is of trouble and tribulation. There's a partnership, a coming together. In fact, John was banned and imprisoned to the island of Patmos for, for preaching the gospel. Paul mentions two ways specifically that the, the Philippians have been a means of, means of grace to him. He says in his imprisonment, again, sending Epaphroditus with this financial gift and to, to minister to his needs. Epaphroditus was sent to go and stay with him. Go and stay with him, Epaphroditus. See whatever he needs and tend to all of his, his needs. Because I'm betting the Romans didn't do a great job of looking after their prisoners. And then secondly, he says, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For those of you who enjoy apologetics, that word defense in the original Greek is the word apologia, where we get our apologetics from. So we can sum up this point as saying a gospel-centered church is empowered by grace to be a means of grace despite opposition to the gospel. So we as a, as a corporate faith family, we are empowered by grace and there is a lot of grace in this family. We are empowered by grace to be a means of grace on this island and to our, our mission partners around the world. We will continue to grace them with finances and prayer so that they can continue to defend and confirm the gospel in the places where God has put them. And we must endeavor to be a means of grace to each other, a support and strength to each other, to the troubles that we face due to standing according to our beliefs, sharing the gospel, and all of the other troubles life throws at us. And so you can imagine, here, here's a man who's sitting in prison, not quite sure if he will be released or if, he, or if he'll be executed, yet he is full of joy. He's not full of anxiety. In fact, he writes later in chapter four, he tells the Philippians to not be anxious about anything. 
coming from a man who's in prison because he knows he has full joy because of the assurance of the gospel. There is such assurance in the gospel. He knows that through the gospel, people's lives are radically transformed as they are united to their heavenly father, so much so that they then begin to partner in that gospel. He knows that through the gospel, God promises to finish the work that he starts in us. And lastly, through the gospel, that we are empowered by grace to be a means of grace to each other. So, to share in this joy and the full implications of the gospel, we just simply have to ask ourselves the question. Are you convinced about the gospel? Are we convinced about the gospel? The gospel is a person, it's Jesus. What he accomplished on the cross, what he is doing and what he will do and all of the implications around that. And if we are, then let's partner. Let's continue to partner together in the gospel. Again, practically speaking, is there someone you can share the gospel with? Is there at least someone that you are praying with that God would save and, and, and use you to bring that person to faith? Is there someone that you can invite to, to our services, to flourish, to our men's event, to your community group? Is there an area in Sunrise that you can serve in? Can you partner together with the gospel for our children's sake? Or join a community group. It's a, it's a wonderful way to express the gifts that God has put within you. For you to love on people and for people to love on you and for you to disciple people and people to disciple you. Join our tech team. We have three guys who constantly have to rotate. Join our tech team so that, the, so that we can sing the gospel, so that we can preach the gospel without any distractions. Partner with us financially for the sake of the gospel. And again, just a big thank you to all of you who are so faithful in that. Pray. We need prayer. Commit to praying for sunrise. Or, or pray for an unreached people group. I have an app on my phone that tells me every day there's a new people group that I can pray for. Uh, or, or pick a country and, and pray for a country. I, I have a, a world map in front of my, uh, uh, the wall in front of my desk. And I look up and, and I, I pick a country and I pray for that country. Lord, please send more missionaries to Germany was the last one. Lord, strengthen your church in Germany. Lord, do what you did to Lydia. Open the Germans' hearts to pay attention to the gospel as it goes forth. Come do some intercessory prayer before the service. We have an enemy who doesn't want us to be here. Who can you go and pray for right after the service? Who can you go and encourage right after the service? Sunrise, you know the difference between a gospel-centered church and a consumer-centered church. A consumer-centered church says, what can I get out of this service? What can I get out of this program? What can I get out of this ministry? Usually tends to be a bit critical. Oh, Jason, long-winded as usual. They didn't sing my favorite song. Why don't they make coffee before the service anymore? A gospel-centered church, a gospel-centered church says, 
hey, how can I partner with Jesus in what he is gonna do in this service? In what he is gonna do at Flourish? In what he is gonna do at the men's event? Or in my community group? Or in our time of fellowship? You can be a means of grace that he uses to impart joy and courage to someone. And in doing that, you will feel joy. You will receive. You will receive joy. You will receive purpose, meaning, and mission. Because a gospel-centered church is a joy-filled church and a joy-giving church. Amen.